Welcome to Capital Considerations, the podcast that takes complex ideas from the investment world and makes them accessible to everyone. I'm your host, Tony Roth, Chief Investment Officer of Wilmington Trust. Today, we are exploring one of the key themes from our 2021 capital markets forecast, pivoting the business, who will be left standing, which focuses on the evolution and future outlook of industries in the wake of COVID-19. I'm very excited for our first industry focus today, which is on commercial real estate. And joining us is an eminently qualified guest, Kelly Rush, Chief Investment Officer of Real Estate Securities at Principal Global Investors. Kelly has been managing real estate equity portfolios since 1997 and is co-portfolio manager on Principal's U.S. and Global Real Estate Securities Funds. Kelly, thank you so much for being here today. Well, thanks for inviting me, Tony. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, and I think it's very timely. Let's get going. Kelly, one of the very personal observations that I can share to kick the conversation off is that we recently opened a new facility in Radnor, Pennsylvania for our investment team. And we all spent a lot of time and effort putting together a great plan for a collaborative work environment, not a lot of walls, 20-foot ceilings. And we were in there for about two or three weeks, and we were just loving it. It was just the best. Then we were all sent home, and it's looking like it's probably going to be over a year before we get back. And so... Yes, we continue to pay the rent because A, we're a good tenant and we're a, we're a big bank and that's what good tenants and big banks do. B, we do expect to get back in there at some point. I believe that human interaction is not only sort of fundamental to the human condition, but also important to doing well in a company like ours from a collaborative standpoint. But it's hard not to miss the, the message, if you will, in the fact that all these office buildings all over the country are close to empty in, in, in some shape or form. And I know it would be easy to dismiss commercial real estate and say, oh, well, there goes that sector of the economy. But of course, it's a lot more complicated than that. Maybe you could, to kick us off, just give us some overall perspective on sort of the haves and have nots, if you will, in the commercial real estate space. Sure, Tony. Real estate um, has been under pressure this year. It's, it's been an underperforming group. As an industry within the stock market, the stocks that we invest in have generally been underperforming. And that's been driven by a couple of reasons. One, they're just part of this very large universe of companies that, frankly, are, are not part of the FANG group. So the FANG stocks, as we all know, have just been ripping. And, and as a result, they've really helped. To, they've really been the primary driver of why equity markets have recovered and, and, and done better than probably what many would have expected in the year of a pandemic this year where the economy has been shut down the way that it was. So that's been part of it. But part of it as well is just all this uncertainty as to what are going to be the long-lasting impacts of the pandemic and what's it going to mean for real estate. And particularly, what's it going to mean for sectors that maybe in unforeseen ways that and uh, that, that one couldn't have seen previously. And it really it boils down to this, as I relate it to your experience, Tony. We've been forced to work from home as a result of the pandemic, and in being forced to work from home, we've also come to realize, hey, this works. This works pretty good. Uh, this is this works better than what we expected. So now the big question that's coming uh, into focus is the question of 
how are companies going to react? How are workers going to react when they're no longer tied to a location? Uh, that when work can be done from anywhere, it can be done from home, it can be done from anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world. And so uh, no one quite knows the answer to that just yet. That's going to literally take years to play out. And that's creating a lot of uncertainty uh, regarding uh, the companies that own real estate that I invest in. But there are a lot of distinctions to be made within the commercial real estate space. Are there areas that are doing well and areas that are doing poorly? Is all office space doing poorly? Is some doing well? If you narrow the focus to real estate, uh, we can see that within real estate, it's been a bit of a microcosm of what's gone on in the broader uh, equity market. And in so much that we have our own group of, of sectors that have have markedly outperformed in this environment. We've had some that have lagged. So the big outperformers have been companies that own large logistical warehouse facilities that are supporting the e-commerce industry. So our industrial sector, uh, owners of special purpose space that's used for the life science industry and the biotechnology industries. Uh, that's been a very popular in favor sector. Those stocks have done quite well. Owners of, of data centers, owners of mobile cell towers, owners of single family residential homes that, that they own, that they rent, uh, that are largely in suburban areas. These have all been groups of stocks that have, have been part of the haves, if you will. And in terms of the have nots, and we already mentioned office. Uh, likewise, uh, lodging's been under a lot of pressure. And then retail with the already in place trend toward increased e-commerce and with that only accelerating as part of, of the pandemic, uh, we've seen the need for physical stores be reduced. And those have been among the group of stocks that have been in the have-not group. All right. So let's just parse some of these out even more specifically. And let's stick with Office for a moment. We have what I see as this tension, if you will, if I was an owner of those kinds of assets, where on the one hand, it would seem that they're somewhat immunized from the immediate impacts of the, the lockdowns and the closures because most commercial real estate is going to have, of course, very long lease terms with that. So unless the lessee is actually going to go bankrupt, the property owner is going to be able to continue to collect rent uh, in most cases, I would imagine. But then on the other side of things, as you noted, Kelly, so many people are, in fact, recognizing whether you're on the employer or the employee side of the divide, that people can work from home successfully. And maybe we'll never get back to the sort of full in-office employment that we had prior to the pandemic. So how do those two forces play against each other? And where are they going to shake out, you think, over the longer term? Well, the good news is that if you're the owner of an office building, um, you have a bit of a reprieve, provided that you've got good credit quality in your in your building today in terms of your tenants, and so you have these enforceable contracts where they're obligated to to make good on the on the rental payments, and so it essentially buys you some time as a landlord to to weather the storm to see how this all plays out in the end, and and. And no one really knows the answer to that today. It's going to take some time to sort that out. So it buys you a time as an owner of, of an office building. Um, however, in the public markets, which is where I am active, uh, the markets are 
very swift in, in reacting, and they're anticipating what they see the future to be, which helps to explain why office stocks have been under as much pressure as what they've been under this year, uh, having fallen by about, you know, it depends on which stock you're talking about, but they've lost roughly a third of their value this year. And while there are certainly companies like Microsoft that have already been quite public around their commitment to allow, in the new normal, post-pandemic employees to work from home permanently, not all of them, of course, but, but some population. So do you have any sense of what percentage of their business the providers of this commercial office product are going to be losing? It's really too early to tell. I mean, any number I would give you, and I, I can give you a range, but it, it's highly speculative. It's just too early to tell. But I think I, I would suggest to you that most industry observers would suggest to you that uh, one could say with a fair amount of confidence that terms of long-term demand that that we would estimate that it's been diminished anywhere from, let's say, a range of 10 to 20 percent, and that's a pretty conservative estimate. Some would tell you that's that's too low, that it's going to be even more than that. And uh, frankly, no one really knows at this time. Yeah, but certainly very material in, in terms of margins. Yeah, in the end, it's material. There's there's going to be a material diminution of demand for office as a result of this. The only issue is is how much. And and from my perspective, I then you know my challenge then is what's what's being embedded into the stock prices, and and those are the judgments I and my team are having to make. Staying within the office space, Kelly, one of the areas that I see somewhat of a trend is that we're seeing a lot of folks that live in the suburbs that had erstwhile commuted into the city to go to the big office tower, and perhaps after the pandemic, they will have the ability to go to a more localized suburban office, maybe smaller, maybe less people. And it's something that employers might have to do in order to accommodate employees to get them into an office at all, or it may be something that just makes sense um, in terms of smaller groups working together successfully. And New York City is, is an area in particular that a lot of folks are worried about midtown Manhattan real estate um, what's the long-term impact there? A lot of folks moving out to the Greenwiches and the summits in New Jersey and so on and so forth. But then on the other hand, you've seen the Amazons and Apples and Googles take up massive space within um, Manhattan recently. So maybe you could just sort of flesh it out for us a little bit. Well, first one I'll grab onto is your comment regarding the the Manhattan leasing that's occurred recently. Those were all trends that were in place pre-pandemic. So Really, you can almost disregard that um, in terms of what implications that has for the future. The situation today is we're in a very, very dynamic environment today where we're all trying to sort out what's going to be the impact of of the pandemic and what's going to be its long-lasting impact. And we've just come through a period of time where there's been a this trend over the past, say, throughout this century to date, the past 20 years, where we've seen this shift toward moving toward the most popular, call them 24-7 cities, 24 hours, seven days a week, active, chance to work, live, and play, uh, uh, entertainment opportunities, nightlife opportunities, um, uh, restaurants and whatnot, just people being very much attracted to those types of cities. And so what's what's occurring today that 
arguably in some ways being being caused by the pandemic, but there are other factors contributing to it as well, is have we reached an inflection point where we've seen a zenith in terms of the, the popularity of this move uh, of that's been occurring over the last 20 years? And are we now going to start to see that reverse somewhat? Somewhat as a result of no longer being tied to a location as a worker, so you can increasingly work from anywhere, as mentioned earlier, but then also contributing to that is just the rising cost of living in some of these locations. And, and if by moving outside of them, you can uh, offset that and gain more space in terms of where you live. And so uh, what what many would suggest, and I would tend to subscribe toward, is we probably have seen the the peak of that shift that had been going on the past 20 years. What's difficult for any of us to gauge is, is it completely reversing now, or does it just mean that that growth of populated us somewhat? My guess is the truth is somewhere in between there, uh, that it's not just going to be a complete reversal. And then, and then what we'll have to sort out is, is this a shift toward... Uh, the suburbs? Is this a shift toward uh, secondary cities in the U.S., which are going to be the beneficiaries? And, and those are all issues that we're having to work through. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Certainly, it looks like the pandemic and some of the social stress we've had in the country in, in the form of various riots and, and racial issues and whatnot, coupled with the perception that cities may be more dangerous from a health standpoint, at least the short term, forces that are acting on the real estate market uh, as people do somewhat migrate as, out of those top-tier cities into burbs and second-tier cities. What impact does it have on the multifamily residential real estate market? You know, when I think about the millennial, it was always the case that millennial was going to live in the big city, um, never buy their own home, live in an apartment forever. And we're seeing a big resurgence in the housing market, particularly for first-time homes. We're seeing millennials um, sort of shifting their behavior pretty radically. It would suggest perhaps that multifamily residential, at least in big cities, may not be as attractive or, or do you see it differently? Well, observers have long anticipated that millennials were going to start to increasingly shift toward wanting to own larger space, um, live in suburbs, starting families. And so that's been anticipated for some time. Arguably, the the pandemic's been a bit of an accelerant there in terms of more of that occurring as a result, somewhat because of that factor. But then it really ties back to this bigger issue that we mentioned earlier, this key question of when we're no longer tied to an office space, where will they choose to live? Where will companies allow them to live? And so if you have a reduced propensity to live in a large urban center, then you're going to have reduced needs as it relates to housing in those centers. And so it's really been brought into question, what's the value going to be? Uh, what's the earnings potential of a large luxury apartment building in Manhattan? And and that's really been brought into question as a result of the pandemic. And uh, that's part of the uh, dynamic environment that we exist in today is that people are trying to sort that out. But I can tell you that the stock markets quickly voted by saying, we're really concerned. This looks like this could be uh, could have a very negative impact on, on those types of properties. So let's maybe uh, get into some other areas of the commercial real estate space. You mentioned industrial warehouses. We're all aware of the big trend to e-commerce and, and digital consumption for goods that has only been accelerated with the pandemic. And we had actually brought to market, Kelly, a couple of years ago or so, an uh, industrial warehouse fund 
with one of the, we think, best sponsors in the country in that space and it's done phenomenally well for us. Is it an area that is overbaked at this point uh, or is there still opportunity, do you think, in the sort of that, that ecosystem that supports the distribution chain for e-commerce? Well, one of the things that we do when we're making our judgments when at Principal Global Investors is we spend a lot of time talking with our people that manage private assets for our for uh, investors that want to be in the private markets. And we just had our most recent meeting with that group. And I walked away from that meeting just even more convinced about just the enduring nature of some of these trends and investor interest in in industrial properties going forward. So we have a very positive uh, outlook as it relates to industrial and feel quite good about it going forward. And part of the issue behind that is that there's a lot of money out there looking to find its way into alternatives. There's a lot of money looking to find its way within the alternative space into real estate and as a private investment, yet that money is very reluctant to buy its way into things like um, office buildings, into retail properties, into lodging properties. Uh, if you just watch some of the headlines, there's a large groups such as Blackstone that's a big investor that, that really isn't looking to, to make contrarian investments in those assets and instead into those types of assets. So increasingly, you've got more, more money funneling its way into, into, into things like industrial, uh, property types such as industrial. And so as a result, uh, we think the very supportive for that sector going forward. And so, uh, no, we don't judge it to be overbaked at this time. Uh, see nothing but very strong, supportive tailwinds for that sector going forward. And it's interesting, Kelly, one of the other areas of focus for us is, in fact, the retail space within this theme in our capital market forecast. And one of the, the observations that we note there is that with all of the acceleration that we all feel in our uh, in our own lives, if you will, in consuming through our computers and our and our phones as a percentage of total retail spend e-commerce has moved from around 13 to maybe 16 or 17%. So it's still a fairly modest percentage of the overall pie and there's a lot of, a lot of room for growth there which all needs to, to be supported by um by industrial warehouse and then of course their models are changing too as they move to more immediate delivery they need smaller spaces that are closer into the the populace so uh, lots of trends supporting that that area i think um you mentioned lodging so lodging is an area that boy i wouldn't want to be a hotel owner right now right because hotel owners airplane owners they're not assets that people are comfortably u- utilizing for the most part how do you think about the the future of lodging are there important distinctions to be made around business versus more vacation type of properties? What's your take there? Sure. Well, well, first I'll just mention up front that we do study lodging very carefully. Uh, it is worth noting that within our universe uh, that we have to invest in, whether you're talking the U.S. or global, it's a pretty de minimis portion. It's, it's really not a large portion of our universe that we have to invest in. Uh, but having said that, we do follow it very carefully. Uh, within the lodging space, you know, the, the big issue is around um, now that we've all gotten accustomed to doing more and more meetings via Zoom, via Teams, that will there be diminished need for business travel going forward? Will companies see that as a potential area of cost savings? 
now that it's become customary, will it become more acceptable business practice, if, if you will? Well, the question is just how much, you know, in the end, still that first that face-to-face uh, interaction is going to matter. And, and we don't think that's going away entirely. And, and then the second consideration around this is that um, not only will business travel likely be reduced, but there's likely going to be not just for meeting purposes, but also in terms of conferences. We expect that there'll be fewer conferences going forward. Uh, we found as a team, my, my own team, that we're actually attending more conferences now that we're able to do so using Zoom technology. And so our suspicion is that we'll probably move toward more conferences that are done in some sort of hybrid fashion where some will travel and some will not. Uh, but that will enable those that don't travel to attend more conferences. And so as a result, again, less need for hotel space. In terms of leisure travel, we really see that as being a short-term phenomenon. It's been diminished, of course, uh, this year, but we think that that will come back. It's just a matter of time. It's just more of a question of when do people feel safe to do so again. And, and again, we expect that to be a short-term phenomenon. So from an access and investment exposure standpoint, Kelly, if you're a retail investor or maybe even have access to some private REITs, are there vehicles that have historically made that discrimination between a vacation hotel property, lodging property versus business and have focused on one or the other so that uh, going forward, people looking to put money to work in the real estate space in the specifically in lodging can direct their money towards the kinds of opportunities that we think are going to come back hard once we get the vaccine and, and sort of stay away more from the, the business focused hotels. Within our universe of publicly traded lodging companies, uh, those are choices that are available to us. We have some companies that focus very much on the leisure traveler and some that focus on the business traveler and some that do a mix. So uh, within the within the public universe, that's very much a choice that one can make. Now, you had asked me about private REITs. That's really an area that I don't study carefully, but I would suggest that I know just enough probably just to indicate that, that they're as prob- there are probably limited options available for doing that sort of segmentation within that universe. Uh, in fact, most private REITs tend to be a little more diversified in nature where they're not single property type specific. But again, uh, I'm not the expert in that area, so I'll, I'll defer to others who know more than me there. All right, fair enough. Um, I did want to ask you as well that most owners of these commercial assets, whether it's an office building, uh, a hotel, a, a retail a mall, um, even retail, smaller retail st- storefront type of properties, um, certainly industrial warehouses. Most of these things are financed. And we're in an environment now where um, we've moved from record low in- interest rates to more uh, record low interest rates, new records. How significant is that further shift to essentially almost a zero rate environment on the front end of the, of the yield curve? for property owners? Does it give them an opportunity to refinance? And and is it really material to their overall income statement when they look at their expense side of that? It's really helping them in two ways. One, it's it is helping from a refinancing standpoint to the extent that they've got a maturing loan on a property, they're able to refinance at a lower cost. Or if they've got, you know, limited prepayment penalties, then then they can take advantage of that as well. So in some modest ways, it is helpful to to property owners within our space of public real estate 
companies, many of them uh, are fairly conservative as it relates to the amount of leverage that they carry, uh, and rightfully so. And so while they do gain some benefit from it, it it's not a big, big material benefit that they're deriving that, that in a big way is changing our uh, future earnings forecast for these companies. So on the margin, helping a bit, but but not a big, big difference maker. It is also supportive in terms of real estate value. A low rate world is supportive of lower uh, required rates of returns or what are known as capitalization rates on purchases or when you're valuing properties, much akin to when people talk about looking at stocks and the valuation of stocks uh, and it being supportive of low discount rates for stocks that that both of the that, that a low rate world is supportive for risk assets such as real estate. And so it's, you know, supportive for real estate values. And those are the two ways in which the lower rate world is having a positive impact on real estate owners. I mean, certainly as investors, we're always looking for income streams and we're looking for income streams to replace bonds now more than we ever have. And to the extent that we can find real estate assets that, that continue to have good income streams associated with them, they're especially valuable and diversified investment portfolios. That's one of the interesting things about what's going on in the market today is that you've got a group of stocks, um, real estate among them, there are other stocks as well, that offer a pretty healthy dividend yield in, in such a low rate world, yet yep. they're largely being disregarded by the market um, simply because they're not offering the growth of those select few FANG stocks that they're offering. And so um, investors could be well served to look at making sure that they have diversified portfolios with exposure beyond the most popular, you know, just buying more Amazon stock, if you will, and looking to buy something that's been out of favor, that's not been performing as well, but yet still offers a, a reliable and, and secure dividend yield, which uh, real estate does fit into that group. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And that's exactly what we do in our, our portfolios. Um, we do have a re hard real estate allocation in our portfolios and work hard to find those opportunities. So the last question, Kelly, is because the commercial real estate universe is just so incredibly broad, I thought I'd just throw it open to you to ask, are there other areas of commercial real estate that we may not have touched on that you think, even if they're a bit specialized, perhaps, that you think that our listeners should just be aware of that, that may continue to um, present opportunity and do well, notwithstanding the uh, environment we're in. So of our universe, we've spent a disproportionate amount of our time talking about roughly a quarter of our universe that I have to invest in. We've talked a lot about office and retail and lodging stocks. And and that's certainly a, a, part, a big part of our real estate universe that we have to invest in. But it's still... Um, roughly it represents about 25% of our universe. We still have a number of other areas, some of which have been very, very much in favor. We've seen very strong price performance, and I, I mentioned some of those earlier. But then there's also been other sectors where they've seen nice, steady, resilient demand as well. Uh, we've seen the self owners of self-storage uh, do uh, have a reasonably a strong fundamentals, consistent demand there for that sort of space. 
We've seen other sectors that are large, notable sectors that have been under pressure. I would suggest primarily for short-term concerns, but but longer term should end up standing up and doing well. And specifically, I would highlight the multifamily sector in that area. Eventually, people do need to have a place to live. And so this is a necessity-based sector that um, we believe that's been punished quite a bit that, that does represent some good value opportunity that we have to con- look at in our universe. Likewise, owners of healthcare facilities, they've been under a lot of pressure this year as well, uh, as, as the pandemic has certainly torn through in a very, uh, you know, very negative way in terms of, of their population resulting in death in many and just increased costs in terms of running these facilities. And so just as a result, as a result of the pandemic, there've been a lot of pressures there. But as we all know that there's a long-term demographic shift of an aging population for the need for healthcare facilities. So over time that will eventually recover. And we've seen some of these stocks, uh, we've seen the stocks be under some pressure this year. And so there's a large percentage of our universe, some of which has been under pressure for short-term needs that will recover. Uh, some sectors have really actually done reasonably well that have been thriving as a result of the pandemic. And then there's this third basket that we spend a disproportionate amount of time on today that have been under a lot of pressure. There's some companies that are poised to do well longer term once we come out on the other side of this pandemic. And then there's a group of companies that that are, you know, there's kind of a fog around that only time will tell how they perform. And and those are the ones that we're having to, uh, you know, that that we're going to have to be patient on to see how that all unfolds. Well, certainly it's an area that requires deep expertise in all the various nuances and distinctions of these types of um, hard, hard real estate assets. And we could go on. Um, there's so much more to cover, but unfortunately, we're out of time. So I'm going to summarize the three key takeaways, as I always do. Uh, and I'm going to start with the idea that while there are some subsectors of the commercial real estate space, uh, like office uh, in particular, uh, in urban settings, uh, maybe storefront retail, malls, et cetera, that are under a lot of pressure right now, we really have to find out what the long-term impact is going to be on some of the underlying trends, like like working remotely, et cetera. We know there's going to be an impact, but we don't know how profound the impact is going to be. And in the meantime, there is some tailwind for these assets through the ability to, to have longer-term leases. If you have high-credit high tenants, um, and maybe some refinancing options to help a little bit on the margin as well. So um, those particular areas, while not probably set up for a swift recovery over time, um, there may be some really good value there. Second is that those demographic trends around working from home uh, rather than being in the office are going to play out in lots of different and interesting ways, not just from urban to suburban, but also tier A cities versus tier B cities, perhaps continue what we've seen for decades, northeast to sunbelt states and those trends will present their own set of opportunities. We are here at Wilmington Trust looking very carefully at bringing an opportunity for qualified clients to invest in just that, which is multifamily residential real estate in primarily um, what we have historically thought of as BTR cities, but which are for many younger people, the choice cities to live in these days. And then lastly, I would say that in a diversified portfolio, it continues to be critical to structure income into those portfolios and not only to provide income to the beneficiaries of the portfolios, but also to provide some shock absorbers, 
some certain sources of return in a lower return environment going forward. And lots of different kinds of real estate continue to be very sound sources of income and continue to comparatively be much more interesting than the traditional source of income, which are bonds. And so we think that in building good diversified portfolios here at Wilmington Trust, and, and Kelly, you've helped us corroborate this, that real estate um, carefully selected really has a very important role to play. So with that, Kelly, I want to thank you so much again for, for being here and helping us understand the commercial real estate space today. Thanks for having me, Tony. I've enjoyed it. And I want to remind our listeners how important it is to have their portfolios and wealth plan stress test to see how they stack up, particularly during this very uncertain period in the COVID pandemic and the slow economic recovery that we continue to uh, undertake here in the economy in the U.S. and globally. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I encourage you to visit WilmingtonTrust.com for a roundup of our investment and planning content. You can subscribe to Capital Considerations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast channel to ensure you get updates on future episodes. Thank you again for listening. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the sale of any financial product or service or recommendation or determination that any investment strategy is suitable for a specific investor. Investors should seek financial advice regarding the suitability of any investment strategy based on the investor's objectives, financial situation, and particular needs. The information on Wilmington Trust's capital considerations with Tony Roth has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. The opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the judgment of Wilmington Trust as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. Wilmington Trust is not authorized to and does not provide legal or tax advice. Our advice and recommendations provided to you is illustrative only and subject to the opinions and advice of your own attorney, tax advisor, or other professional advisor. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against a loss. There is no assurance that any investment strategy will be successful. Past performance cannot guarantee future results. Investing involves a risk and you may incur a profit or a loss. Any reference to company names mentioned in the podcast should not be constructed as investment advice or investment recommendations of those companies. Facts and views presented in this report have not been reviewed by and may not reflect information known to professionals in other business areas of Wilmington Trust or M&T Bank and may provide to seek to provide financial services to entities referred to in this report. M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust have established information barriers between their various business groups. As a result, M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust do not disclose certain client relationships or compensation received from such entities in their reports. Investment products are not insured by the FDIC or any other governmental agency, are not deposits of or other obligations of or guaranteed by Wilmington Trust, M&T Bank, or any other bank or entity, and are subject to risk, including a possible loss of the principal amount invested. Wilmington Trust is a registered service mark used in connection with various fiduciary and non-fiduciary services offered by certain subsidiaries of M&T Bank Corporation, including, but not limited to, Manufacturers and Traders Trust Company, M&T Bank, Wilmington Trust Company, WTC, operating in Delaware only, Wilmington Trust NA, WTNA, Wilmington Trust Investment Advisors, Inc., WTIA, Wilmington Funds Management Corporation, WFMC, and Wilmington Trust Investment Management, LLC, WTIM. Such services include trustee, custodial agency, investment management, and other services. International corporate and institutional services are offered through M&T Bank Corporation's international subsidiaries. 
loans, credit cards, retail, and business deposits, and other business and personal banking services and products are offered by m Bank, member FDIC. 2021 m Bank Corporation and its subsidiaries, all rights reserved. <laughs>